Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is February 23rd, 2023, and I am delighted to be here with Rabia Egberia, one of FMAP's 2023 Palestinian non-resident fellows. Today is our first official podcast together with you as a fellow, Rabia, and I am so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. So I want to start by introducing you to our audience, a little formally, and then we'll unpack. So Rabia is a human rights attorney completing his doctoral studies at Harvard Law School. He worked as an appellate public defender before joining the Haifa-based Adela Legal Center, where he argued major Palestinian civil and political rights cases. And I'll just add that Adela is a partner of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Correct. A partnership we're very proud of. <laughs> Rabia published on various subjects relating to Palestinians and Israeli law, including the censorship of online speech, the legal land regime, and the criminalization of Palestinian foragers. His writings appeared in the Yale Journal of Law and Technology, the Law and Political Economy Project, and the Journal of Palestine Studies, among others. Rabia previously served as an executive article editor of the Harvard Human Rights Journal and currently serves as an editorial member of Jadalia's Palestine page. And he has a brand new article together with Nora Erekat on Jadalia. That's right. We'll, we'll have a link on the webpage for this podcast. It's excellent. So Rabia, my first question for you, not in the language of your professional biography, will you please tell our audience about yourself? Who are you? What, what do you want listeners to know about you as a scholar, as a human rights attorney, as a person? Yeah, I'm so excited first to be here with you and, and have this conversation. I just remembered when I first came here to the States, all these biographies really stressed me out. <laughs> and I just remembered wanting to write at one point of my time, you know, everybody hates this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's maybe how how I would like to be defined. Um, but seriously, a bit more about me. Um, I grew up, I was born and raised in Haifa. Um, and I grew up there to a family that originally comes, my mother comes from Akka, and we talked a little bit earlier actually about that. My father comes from um, Haifa, from Emir uh, Fahim, and uh, they moved back to Haifa, which is kind of um, half circle back because my family was before 1948, before the Nakba, before you know the mass displacement for Palestinians. For those of our audience who don't know, the Nakba is a catastrophe in Arabic. Uh, it resembles a structure of dispossession for Palestinians. Um, it's a process that predates 1948, but um, is really um, you know uh, resembled by the 1948 dispossession of Palestinians and displacement of more than 700,000 people. Uh, my family was one of these people who were displaced from their house um, and uh, and some of them internally displaced, others ended up being refugees ousted from historical Palestine. And that background, I learned, today I'm learning and reckoning with it more and more formed who I am. You know, even when I grew up, I did not maybe know, I was not aware of this um, impact, but the more I think about it, the more I realize how foundational it is to who I became um, later on, to this, you know, um, family fragmentation that I carry with me and, and with my past. So I grew up um, in Haifa, which is again a half circle because that's where my family was before 1948. Mm 
Um, but this did not entail any closure, this full circle. And uh, and I think that's what I'm, um, I am trying to figure out as a human, <laughs> to find this closure one day. Beautiful. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Of course. So I want to ask you about being both a human rights attorney and a scholar. Mm. So um, let's talk about the your your legal work first. Will you tell us what kind of attorney are you? What does it mean to be a human rights attorney in the context of living in Haifa, working with Adullah? Uh, what are some of the, the more meaningful cases, more meaningful to you, mm. cases that you have argued? Yeah, that's, um, well, I think, you know, there is no one answer to what is being a human rights attorney in this context, right? Um, it's it's a position where you're always grappling with with questions of, should you be a human rights attorney in this context, at least for me, you know? Um, it's a question of what, how do you carry out your job in a system of um, unjust policies of fundamental injustice? And are your practices eventually legitimating that system by engaging with it, uh, you know? So this is a fundamental tension that I think most human rights lawyers um, carry. Now, being a lawyer with Adala, I started actually my, my uh, lawyering career as a public defender. Where? Um, in the public defender system. And I, I was in the Supreme Court cases department, um, which you know handled criminal appeals basically. Um, and um, some of my cases were Palestinian, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. And some of them, I remember, you know, just trying to, or exposure to the human rights work from an incarceration kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember I, I started with appeals that had to do some of them with uh, juveniles and uh, minors in Jerusalem and entrapment policies that uh, happened in occupied Jerusalem. Um, mostly we used to fail, you know, and this is still the case. We are proud losers in a system of, again, fundamental injustice. Yeah. And um, then I moved to Adala and started, and Adala is a different type of lawyering. It's a lawyering, it's a cause lawyering. Um, you're not representing necessarily one particular client. You know, the, the questions are different. The, 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 the type of engagement with the uh, cases is different. And uh, I remember first joining Adala, and my very first case that I was really passionate about, I think, was the Zatar case, <laughs> which is something that I kind of uh, wanted to, to work on, the decriminalization of Zatar and Akub, the foraging of Zatar and Akub, and we can talk more about that. Um, but on a more um, litigation note, perhaps, I started working on prisoners' rights, uh, particularly, of course, uh, the so-called security prisoners, the Palestinian prisoners that are designated as security prisoners under the Israeli um, prison system. Um, so we filed a petition back the first few months that I worked with Adala against the law that discriminated um, against Palestinian prisoners in the release. Um, it's called the administrative release system. And from there, I remember going on to work on a, I think my favorite, one of my favorite cases was also the, uh, the cyber unit case, which was a case about that involved a lot of, you know, uh, new material, which was not perhaps uh, the first thing you think of when you, when you talk about Israeli policies, right? Like the censorship of online speech was relatively new at the time. 
with the social media companies and this whole idea of um, censoring uh, Palestinian voices online uh, was not as visible as it is today. The, the knowledge about it was not as um, common as it is today. Uh, today, it's, it's kind of clear that it's happening, that there is certain also cooperation between these third companies or platforms like Facebook, etc., and um, also the Israeli government. Back at the time, it was a little bit less transparent or uh, less knowledge mm -hmm. was visible or public about it. And we started working about this unit was that was back then relatively recently established in the Israeli prosecutor office that cooperated or submitted requests that are non-binding informal requests to Facebook, among other platforms, to take down content that it deemed um, either illegal or basically um, violating Facebook's own terms of service mm -hmm. or so-called community standard. Um, so we took that also to court and I think it was a very interesting case, which we also lost. <laughs> but that's that's fine. As I said, I mean, we're uh, proud losers. <laughs> it is really course. It's a position I, I'm happy to occupy. <laughs> uh, before we move on to your scholarship give us a, a couple of words on the zatar case sure i um well the zatar case for those who don't know um for me it started as a research project uh, when i was in law school um and i i put, basically put the word zatar in the legal uh, databases uh, and these decisions of people who were criminalized uh, for foraging zatar or Possessing Zatar even. The law basically is really nature protection laws criminalize either possession, trade, or um, picking of Zatar, Akub, and Sage, Maramiya, which are three Palestinian um, cuisine plants. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the criminalization comes under the pretext of nature protection. Mm -hmm. Although these plants are not endangered, and there is no scientific corpus that um, that su suggests that the criminalization should take that form at least, you know, or that the regulation should take a form of severe absolute criminalization. Mm -hmm. So once I started digging into that phenomenon, trying to understand what's going on here, it very quickly for me became evident that this is about, um, you know, that it's reflective of uh, colonial and settler colonial logic, mm -hmm. where uh, the colonizer is coming with this logic to educate the native about, you know, what is nature, what is considered culture, you know, what is considered harmful culture, which is native culture, mm -hmm. uh, and how should we protect, preserve nature by basically distancing it from the native. Mm -hmm. And this is a phenomenon that happens across different settings of settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. And it just became for me very evident that the story of taking these people to court, uh, criminalizing uh, mostly elderly, but not only elderly people, was a story that encompassed, was a microcosm of the Nakba, mm -hmm. right? It's the microcosm of the Palestinian who loses all his, or, or loses control on his everydayness, on his basic um, acts uh, or basic relationship to nature, to food, to, to the land. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the story for me. You know, it's a story of dispossession, it's also a story of cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. It encompasses a lot of dimensions to it. And I think it was fascinating to see that it's all happening under this legitimating force or double legitimating forces of both law and 
science, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, were there a lot of cases? Yeah, there were dozens of cases, yes, in the last about 20 years that are published. Wow. I collected more than 60 cases. And we're talking about criminal cases. These does not, this, these cases don't include the countless hundreds of fines, uh -huh. on the spot fines right. that people are mm -hmm. subjected to sometimes. Mm -hmm. And the policy is pretty indiscriminate in the sense that um, you know, you don't know when you're getting a fine. Mm -hmm. You don't, there's no coherent logic to when a person gets a fine or when he's brought to court. Uh -huh. You know, it does not necessarily mean that people who are brought to court are more severe pickers or cases right um and it, <laughs> yeah uh, so so or the, the, the amounts were necessarily bigger or something like that but in fact what i also showed back at the time was that 100 percent of the defendants were palestinian mm -hmm. so this was creating obviously um a desperate impact on palestinians mm -hmm. and it was tailored to basically criminalize palestinian culture or mm -hmm. fair picking and so that was the case, that was the background to setting up a challenge. Um, after failing, actually, when I was in the public defender, I worked a little bit on a couple of uh, representing particular clients or defendants in Zatar or Akub, um, uh, you know, cases, uh, trials. And we failed there most of the time to create any, you know, wider, broader change in that mm -hmm. policy. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when I joined Adala, we thought we should address this issue more systematically and and uh, uh, we started a legal challenge of a policy that uh, eventually we managed to um, push the Nature and Parks Authority, who's the body in charge of this, mm -hmm. to reformulate their ban from an absolute ban to a ban that allowed basically a margin of picking um, up to five kilograms of, you know, Akub and 1.5 kilograms of Zata in certain areas, yeah. And for the whole year or for per pick? Per pick, per pick, so, per day, per person. So you won. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can say we won. Yeah. Um, we we won that challenge, absolutely. Um, in the sense that after 40 years of criminalizing Zata, um, there was finally a change in that policy, in that front. Yeah. Great, <laughs> thank you. So. Um, now you're doing a a, a doctorate. Here, yeah. here we are sitting together, meeting in person in Harvard, at Harvard, where yes. you're doing a doctorate. What brought you to scholarship? What brought you to, acad to academic law? You came here for an LLM. Now you're doing the PhD. Tell us more about um, what this, what opening these academic doors means for you, what, like, why yeah. you decided to do it, and and a little bit about what you're focusing on you're now ABD, all but dissertation. Yeah. And so if you would, what are you writing about? Sure. I mean, I think the short answer what brought me to academia would be also Zata. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's how it started. But um, I was always drawn to, I think, this combination of lawyering and reflection. And I think that academia allows you that space for reflection and uh, and writing that sometimes, you know, you miss in your professional life as a lawyer um, because you're drawing in the details and the cases, and sometimes you need that space. So that for me, it was clear that I'm going to combine these two aspects. Um, and I found this place to be the right place, the, the place that worked eventually also for me. So, you know, I, I came here 
to do my master's first, which I also did on a topic completely different than I'm working now on. I did it on goats and camels <laughs> and policies pertaining to the um, and laws pertaining to the um, Black Goat Act, for example, which is another law that criminalized grazing of um, Palestinians, grazing of goats, uh, and also camels in certain areas. Um, so it was another extension, I think, of these policies that pertain, for example, to the Zatar is one manifestation, but the idea, again, behind all of these policies is the um, to disconnect Palestinians from their land through different mediums, right? It, one, one manifestation is Zatar, another manifestation is the goat, a third perhaps is, you know, uh, camels or other animals, or uh, but, but you just realize that this logic of the Nakba manifests itself in many different instances, almost in every um thinkable story perhaps uh that, that pertains to the relationship between Palestinian land and where the state comes kicks in to regulate police that area um from there i i continued to my uh, sjd which is the doctorate in law uh, program at the at the school and now i'm looking at fragmentation of palestinians legal fragmentation of palestinians same one yeah what does that mean I'm trying to figure out, <laughs> but um, the idea talking to us about the fragmentation of your family. Exactly. Now you're working on legal fragmentation. So that's true. Please. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, the idea of legal fragmentation is basically that today the reality of Palestinians is fragmentation, right? We don't have one framework that unites Palestinians mm -hmm. um, politically, economically, socially, etc. But and as I, you know, as you can learn from a story of my family, for example. But uh, more deeply, I think this structure of fragmentation is also legal. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you have Palestinians today living in under five major legal categories. Um, you have Palestinian citizens of Israel, like myself, who hold citizenship. You have Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem. You have Palestinian residents of the West Bank. You have Palestinian residents of Gaza. These are four distinct categories, although they are all in some way, shape or form are governed by Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and this stratification of Palestinians and classi their classification, continued classification uh, under this regime is a phenomenon that I call legal fragmentation. Mm -hmm. uh, while at the same time, you have Jewish Israelis who hold uh, or who, who occupies singular legal status, mm -hmm. regardless of territorial divisions. So you can be a settler in the West Bank um, and hold the same rights, you know, and are subject to the same civil Israeli legal system as a person who lives in Tel Aviv or Haifa or doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. While Palestinians who occupy these distinctive geographies mm -hmm. hold different legal statuses usually. And obviously the fifth category would be people who are refugees or diasporic communities who are excluded from this regime, mm -hmm. right? Um, and are defined by their exclusion, right. by this legal exclusion. Um, so, so this is the phenomenon of legal fragmentation that I'm trying to look at or theorize and, and develop. Uh, and part of it, or an essential part of it, is the idea that there is no legal mobility between these classes or mm -hmm. tiers mm -hmm. uh, of legal fragmentation. Mm -hmm. So mostly uh, a resident of Gaza can't become a resident of the West Bank, right. you know, or a resident of the West Bank can't just suddenly decide to become or upgrade his mm -hmm. status to a citizen or a resident of mm -hmm. Jerusalem. 
Um, so this is central. And basically the only effectively, the only mobility you have is downward mobility. Yeah. Just recently, we have this law that expanded the ability of the, uh, the, the government, the Israeli government, to strip, revoke citizenship of Palestinian citizens mm -hmm. and even deport them. Mm -hmm. Last week? Yeah, just last week. Um, it's an expansion of an already existing law that the Supreme Court also, you know, upheld. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a youth case, which was a Adala case as well. Um, and yes, so, so, so this is the regime of legal fragmentation that I'm trying to, to articulate, to look at, to examine and, and understand. Mm -hmm. How interesting. So the fragmentation, the, the absence of mobility is the defining feature, the absence of upward mobility and only the presence of downward mobility hmm. is the defining feature, as you're describing it. When you put it that way, I'm, I'm inclined to say yes. I'm just joking about uh, the life of a PhD student. Um, you know, yes, I think it's 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 a crucial part of it. Um, I, I, I don't think it's the only defining feature. I, I think there is the nexus that differentiate between the legal fragments mm -hmm. is, uh, first is a shifting nexus, but also, mm -hmm. It's also about uh, you know the political community, the um, the mo mobility in general, the movement rights that a person has. For example, movement is a very clear domain where this fragmentation is manifested, right? Mobility, as in a body moving through yeah, space, yeah, yeah. not not movement. can you move among classes, but can I go from, from point movement. A to point B? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And what pa what uh, identity IDs do you have? Right? right. What passport do you have? Right. Um, I am eligible for an Israeli passport because I'm a Palestinian citizen, right? Yes. But a Palestinian from East Jerusalem mm -hmm. is not eligible for an Israeli mm -hmm. passport. He's only eligible, for example, for a laissez-passer travel bucket. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And this comes with a different set of restrictions about mobility from and to the world, but also mobility within mm -hmm. Palestine Israel, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's different tiers of mobility. A person from Gaza cannot essentially go out of Gaza unless you know, he qualifies to the very strict uh, standards of the humanitarian exceptions mm -hmm. for the permits. Um, a person from the West Bank is subject to the military permit regime. Mm -hmm. you know? And these, these are different manifestations of fragmentation, mm -hmm. um, where bodies are regulated by a single regime that creates different policies for different people based on your legal classification. Mm -hmm. um, so, so definitely, the, the, and again, and these, this corresponds with territory, with ID cards, um, with, um, with with other sets of rights that you may have, but also essentially with the political community that is drawn and imposed around you. Right. And the, the political community that you are allowed to participate in. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Palestinian citizens, they are in some sort of forcibly incorporated into the Israeli body politic, but... Mm -hmm. They're conditioned to participate in it, mm -hmm. right? It's not full participation. Mm -hmm. It's not full polit political participation. There is conditions. Um, it's highly policed. But at the same time, they are not allowed. Or if you as a Palestinian citizen, as a citizen of Israel, you cannot freely, for example, consider and participate politics or imagine yourself as part of the broader Palestinian community. Mm -hmm. And broader uh, Palestinian community, meaning spanning all of the fragmented areas. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And this, I mean, this is again a legal issue because, for example, when Palestinians from Jerusalem mm -hmm. decided to run to election in the West Bank, mm -hmm. 
you know, um, this was a problem. Mm -hmm. and, and so you see how the legal system is, you know, maintaining these differences and, and, and trying to, to maintain these divisions, this fragmentation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there is, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not committed to a definitive set of, um, I think the nexus is always shifting, but mm -hmm. I think movement is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. Political community is a huge part of it. And other sets of rights, family. I was wondering you if know. you were thinking if that was, a, I know it's a part of the legal definition. And, and of course, Adela is central in fighting against the family unification. Yeah. Dis, disunification, reunification yeah. laws that prevent Palestinians who have citizenship from extending that citizenship or the protection of residency to a spouse who is not already a citizen. Absolutely. So, so basically, if we want to think about it in terms of fragmentation, right, we have these four classes and the fifth, as we said, is a refugee slash diasporic community class, mm -hmm. right? But within historic Palestine, you now have Palestinians classified into these four classes. And the upper two classes, legally, mm -hmm. um, are the citizens and the residents who have mm -hmm. a little bit more privilege, legal privilege. Right. Uh, again, this does not correspond with economic privilege necessarily mm -hmm. or with class. Mm -hmm. um, but but legal privilege is different in this sense that you have citizens, you have residents, and then there is a line drawn there where these classes cannot extend their legal status to their partners right. from the the other class, which is West Bank and, and, and Gaza. Mm -hmm. um, and even within these two, you know, between the West Bank and Gaza post-2007, it's very, very, very hard to marry and extend your. Mm -hmm. status. So, so it is part of it, obviously, of the regime of Ephraim, who you can even establish a life with, yeah. you know, who is an eligible love story. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Thank you. I look forward to continuing to learn from you as you continue to learn and establish this particular body of knowledge in your in your writing. So this this part of the conversation will continue, I hope. Of course. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you to talk to us a little bit about, you just, you just set us up about the stratification and these, um, and this form of legal fragmentation of Palestinians. Mm. I want to ask to maybe even, I don't know, step, step back one step further. Mm. Um, talk to us about this moment in time overall for Palestinians. What does it mean? Where are we in the history of Palestine or Palestinians? And you've talked a little bit about the importance of, of 1948 for you personally, for Palestinians overall, but you personally, but also I know that 2021, the Intifada, the unity Intifada of, of 2021 is particularly meaningful for you too. So will you tell us where, tell us, tell us more about Palestinians? Yeah. Now? Yeah. Um, it's going to be more of an improvised answer, to be honest, because I'm not, committed to the train of thoughts that I will be having but <laughs> let's, do it. let's do it um, so I think you know as we, we talked about fragmentation right and I think Palestinians today are existing in, in a very severe form of fragmentation but also but also unity right so, so it's not fragmentation is not is not a static and only force that is is there 
um, but also there is an imagined unity that keeps manifesting itself, right? So every generation of Palestinians since 1948 have displayed this unity in different forms, right? It's displayed throughout, um, you know, 1976, perhaps, very forcefully, the, the land day um, of Palestinian citizens, or so, you know, it's displayed in different forms during the first intifada, the second intifada, and then, you know, our generation had the 2021 moment, I think, that is um, very important to understanding where we are today, because I think it really reshaped the whole generation's identity or um, consciousness about Palestinians. And, um, you know, in Palestine, at least, it was a very... Um, powerful moment for Palestinians. And I think we don't understand, you know, the ramifications or the consequences of that moment yet. Mm -hmm. But it is definitely this, again, tension between both fragmentation, material fragmentation, and imagined unity, mm -hmm. and this commitment to this idea of unity, right? For something even to be fragmented, you need you need some imagination of a unit to, to, to start fragmenting, right? Uh, and so... That imagination is, is very much alive and kicking among Palestinians today, especially the younger Palestinians. And it ties to the whole question of you know, nationalism, what it means uh, to have these national aspirations, uh, especially at the time where it's weird, kind of from a leftist perspective to talk about nationalism so favorably, right? Um, but still in this colonial context that we live in, in Palestine, I think, um, this resolution haven't come to, to an end and it's kind of unique in that sense. So, so I do think that today we stand in, in, in a point where the question of fragmentation is very much present, is very much important. And the question of how do we undo that uh, will, will continue to accompany us um, from now on. And it will keep manifesting itself, you know, in, in many different ways. Um, it is a situation in general, you know, of intense domination that I believe cannot be eternally sustainable. Um, and, you know, we do you believe that or do you hope that? I hope, of course, I believe also it cannot be maintained just forever, mm -hmm. you know. I want to believe that at least. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you know, you lose hope. And But, um, it's, it's a situation of intense domination that needs change. And, and this change also will bring hard questions with for Palestinians themselves. You know, we're not, we need to talk to, to imagining that we will be able to overcome, you know, the domination or the regime that is now imposing that form of domination on Palestinians. Many questions will arise, you know, how do you, it's not a process where you just wake up one day and there is a regime fall and everybody's happy, of course, but it's 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 a process that has created a lot of damage along the way, you know, for Palestinians by fragmenting and for example, and the question of how do we reconcile these things is gonna be a hard process. Great. Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm about to ask you about your time at FMAP at the foundation, but mm -hmm. I just hearing you say what you just said, I I just want to say let's do programs on all of that <laughs> on these big questions that Palestinians are asking in in so far as this is a a good platform to explore them in English with this audience that is so welcome uh and would be so powerful so my question for you then 
um, now is, is really like, we're so lucky. You're going to be with us for 2023 here at FMEP. And what do you want this, this audience of listeners to know, to, to think about, to be challenged by? What's, what is your invitation to them? Hmm. I think I will say very briefly, and I'm really happy to continue this, you know, explorations uh, with FMF. It's it's an exciting opportunity. I I want to say, you know, it's it's a moment where I feel um, Palestinian voices are becoming a little bit more heard. Um, not enough, but a little bit more. There is a, a sense of urgency that is floating in certain circles, at least. Um, and I want us to engage in honest and deep, you know, uh, conversations about about these subjects because otherwise we cannot push for the change uh, to happen on the ground. Um, and I really think that we we need these conversations. Not only conversations, we need a change before the conversations. Maybe you know there is a desperate need for a change on the ground. Um, but, because this regime of, of, of domination is simply cruel. Um, and I think we should be, as people who are interested in this subject or the audience, um, I hope you know, that I can bring with me a voice that will clarify or uh, elucidate certain angles. Um, and, and that will help us push for a better uh, change. I hope so too. And I'm grateful to be in partnership with you. You too. Thank you so much. On this process. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for uh, trusting us with these conversations. And um, and I agree with you that there's a new urgency, it feels like. And mm. also, I truly hope that Palestinians are being more heard now. And um, and and FMEP is trying to be a part of that, that shift, mm. um, which is why we have this Palestinian fellowship and this is our second year of it and you and Yara Asi will be our fellows this year and um and leading us in in programs and conversations and inviting guests and and uh helping us to think about things that we need to be thinking about all of us together and so that's our charge that's what we're going to be doing um thank you so much for being thank here thank you for having me and I want to thank also all of our listeners for tuning in today. Uh, thank you for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. I want to remind you, come to our website, uh, www.fmep.org. For resources related to this podcast, we'll have a link to uh, Rabia's newest article, the one he published just now uh, last week, I think, with Nora mm -hmm. Erekat on Jadalia. It's called The Jurisprudence of Death. Palestinian Corpses and the Israeli Legal Process. It's an excellent article. We'll have other links of Rabia's work up. Um, and make sure that you subscribe to this podcast so you can stay up to date with Rabia's programs, with Yara's programs, with all of the other FMEP programs. And uh, we publish research every week. You can find us on our website. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. You can also watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one, on YouTube. And with that, I am Sarah Ann Minkin signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>